Welcome back to Cinema Adventure. We're a movie podcast where every week we talk about a film, sometimes an old film, sometimes a new film. I'm your very good butler, Aiden Walker. And I'm your the person that you're waiting on, Blake Peterson. <laughs> Do you like that pause? I thought it was really nice. Yeah, <laughs> it was good. What are we talking about this week, Blake? We're talking about My Man Godfrey, a 1936 screwball comedy directed by Gregory LaCava. Now, Aiden, this is my, I think, my third time watching this movie, so I'm kind of familiar with, you know, the ins and outs of it. Was this your first time watching My Man Godfrey? This was, in fact, my first time watching. What was your what was your initial reaction to this movie? I think this may be one of my new favorites, actually. I really, mm. really enjoyed it. I'm so glad. I, it's not, I guess I don't watch a lot of comedy, but I don't find myself laughing out loud at movies very often, and I definitely was laughing at this movie. Oh, yeah, it's such a classic comedy, and I think... I think, too, a lot of older comedies like this are generally people don't turn to because they just assume that because it's super, super old that it's not going to be funny. But I think Yeah, I, I, I was thinking because I was looking at the cover of the DVD that I picked up from the library and I was thinking, man, this just looks kind of like it's going to be extravagant, kind of maybe slow 1930s kind of deal. The movie is fast paced. It's yeah. pretty rigorous, and it's only an hour and a half, so it flies by. That's really fast. I remember thinking, I like, I paused to get some water or something, and I looked at how much time was left. I was like, there's 20 minutes left? <laughs> there's still so much that needs to happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, it's part of this. It was like a pretty popular genre in like the 1930s and 40s called the screwball comedy, and basically in these comedies, it's just a satire of the lives of the wealthy, usually kind of a battle of the sexes sort of thing. Usually the woman is more dominant. There's like some kind of romance, but it's more just a series of misunderstandings that you might see in a sitcom. Very fast-paced dialogue. So, I mean, this is one of the defining ones. Usually the movies of Ernst Lubitsch, Preston Sturgis are usually also considered to be defining as well as Howard Hawks. So, yeah, this is probably top five screwball comedies, but definitely a genre worth checking out. A lot of the same kind of humor. They're really fast-paced, very ultra-glamorous stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah, it is a very beautiful movie. All the costumes are pretty amazing. All the sets that they're on are really great. Yeah. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about yes. this movie. As in plot? Yeah. Okay. I You want me to do it this time? You did the last one, uh, I think. You can do it, sure. Okay. I'm very nervous talking about plot because I feel like I'm not yeah, saying I think, anything I think right. I've got this one. This one's pretty simple. Good. So <laughs> there's two rich sisters played by Carol Lombard, who plays Irene Bullock, and Gail Patrick, who plays Cornelia Bullock. Cornelia is the older sister. She's the mean one, very controlling, always has to win, be first place and everything. Anyway, the two of them are attending this big formal event that's a scavenger hunt for the ultra-rich, so they're just going out all around the city. And where? what city does this take place in? I thought it was just New York, but I think whenever I see a big city in a movie, I'm just like... I think it is New York. Okay, great. Um, They go on this scavenger hunt, and there's all these ridiculous things that they have to find. Like, one woman has to go find a goat. Like, there's all these crazy, (laughs) crazy things that they have to attain. Anyway, the the two girls are assigned to find a forgotten man, is what they, they have to find. So, it's 1936, so the girls together go to a Hooverville, which I guess maybe we should explain what a Hooverville is. Yeah, it's just like basically people who were affected by the Great Depression, they just kind of built these homeless camps around the city. So, yeah, mm-hmm. with like metal ro- roofs and like patchwork walls. Just they yeah. made little shacks and made whole communities that would you know, scavenge for food and work together to provide. Kind of like a commune, but like way sadder. You yeah, know? comparable. The two girls show up at a 
Hooverville and they find this man named Godfrey who's played by William Powell and they're like excuse me are you a forgotten man we're doing a scavenger hunt and he's like what the heck is a scavenger hunt and they try to explain it to him and then they tell him that they need a forgotten man and they're asking him like does anybody know who you are and they're being super rude <laughs> and he gets up in a Gil Patrick's face and like tells her off and it's pretty awesome anyway the the younger sister played by Carol Lombard apologizes to him and then he asks her uh, more about the scavenger hunt and basically she says you know I don't like my sister at all if you come with me and we beat her it would be a great service to me because we'd be shoving it in her face and he says I like the sound of that so they go back they win the scavenger hunt and then uh, Carol Lombard offers Godfrey a job as a butler he becomes their butler and he proves himself and their whole family is really wacky and all over the place. They're all a bunch of insane stereotypes of rich people. It just, it kind of goes on like that. I mean, there's like a turn at the end where it all works out for Godfrey and he's able to leave and he has his own business. He actually helps the family out and it's great. It's very funny. Yeah, it's super funny. I like too how the movie starts because your first impression of it is not like this very wealthy scenario, but you just jump right into the Superville. And I like it because a lot of these 30s screwball comedies are they take place in these very lavish sorts of settings almost flaunting the wealth a lot of hollywood in the 30s did that to almost distract audiences away from the great depression they try to make things as grandiose as possible you know like as evidenced by all the rogers and astaire movies for instance so i like that it starts off looking at the outside world and then you go from that and then you jump into the wealth because then it almost seems a little more wasteful and it makes the characters also seem sillier because they're so extravagant and they're doing all these wasteful things, and you're, that's almost part of the comedy is how dizzy these people are and how unaware they are of how their actions have an effect. And the yeah. contrast that's between people in this movie is that the very poor character of Godfrey and his friends in the Hooperville are all super organized, and they have all these plans to, to do things, and they're the ones who actually get work done, and they're sophisticated, and they talk to each other in ways that are, you know, they, they sound like they're very educated and then all the conversations between all the rich people are infantile and they're screaming and they just, there's one point where, what is he, the protege of the um, <laughs> yeah. of uh, the, the mother of the, the family? Uh, he's this character named... Uh, Carlo. Carlo. Yeah, Carlo. Played by Misha, what's his last name? Hour. Hour. I, I, thought, yeah. I thought it said Aver. I was like, I think that's what it is. Misha Hour, played by Misha Hour. There's a whole scene where he's trying to comfort one of the girls and he runs around the, the room like a gorilla. So yeah, the, the contrast is pretty, it's not very subtle. No, and it's funny too because I feel like these characters too, you feel like they almost just sit around their house all day and do stuff like that. They, they just get worked up about all these random things and we'll have like someone like Carlo trying to calm them down. But like you don't feel like they actually do anything except for the father played by Eugene Pallet. Like everyone's just kind of sitting around being rich basically. But it is funny because early on too when they bring Willie Godfrey to the party, like doesn't he denounce everyone as being a nitwit and he makes fun of all of them and then the mom is like, a nitwit, what's that? So it's like a perfect, <laughs> perfect thing. She's great because she takes every insult that's thrown at her no matter how sly is a compliment. Yeah. And she, I mean, it's funny because she doesn't realize that mm -hmm. it is an insult. She's like, what does that mean? Or she's like, Thank you very much. Yeah, no, Irina and Cordelia's mother played by Alice Brady. I think it's my favorite character in the movie because she is this very dim-witted uh, mother, and she has this really funny laugh, too, that's very distinctive. But yeah, every single insult, she'll kind of, like, spin it and make it funny, or really just her obliviousness to everything, pretty much, is propels so much of the comedy. 
and Brady's such a deft comedian. Like, I feel like this role is so hard to pull off because it is so broad. But yet she almost makes it seem plausible because you're like, you know, if you're living in this world of wealth for as long as she has, like, it's pretty plausible that you're going to, you know, be this shallow, but in, like, a funny way. I think it's difficult to pull off a character like that without making it annoying, too, yeah. because all, all of these characters are just such intense stereotypes. <laughs> They're all just, like... Just imagine some annoying rich kid you met once and then crank him up to 11, you know? Mm. But then they're still funny. It's not like you want to just, like, slap these people and tell them to <laughs> shut up. They just, like, yeah, they, they get it. They make it happen. Well, I think what, like, holds it down, too, is the fact that William Powell's character is so grounded. He almost reminds me of, like, an older version of Bill Murray. Like, he just has this deadpan persona, and I think the juxtaposition between his deadpanness and then everyone else's very extravagant whether the way they're talking or how their body's moving. I'm kind of pairing those two, I think it helps level it out a little bit because I think if we were just stuck with these characters without him for a long time, I think it would become a little more insufferable. But you kind of see it through his eyes and you're like, okay, yeah, this is totally ridiculous. And you totally love his character too. Like, yeah. I, I just love William Powell in this movie. He's really dynamic. He's definitely the funniest character for me, at least. I thought he was the funniest. He had the most lines... Which is interesting because he's he's simultaneously the funniest character, but also the straight man. Yeah. You know, but I think it's because he's pulling this really great grift on everybody where, you know, he is, in fact, you know, he's from a Hooverville, but we find out later that he was educated in an Ivy League school. He used to work um, doing, what, like stock market or something? Mm-hmm. He, used to, he used to make a lot of money. Uh, so he's a very knowledgeable guy. So he's kind of tricking them in a way, and he, he really does pull a fast one on him. Yeah, isn't the reason he's in the real, it's, like, because he had, like, a bad breakup, and, like, because of that, like, he was suicidal, and so it kind of... Yeah, he says he was going down life. to the river to jump in and let it carry him away, and then he met two guys down in Hooverville, and they stopped him, and then befriended him, and yeah. he just decided to live with them. Weird change of events, for sure, yeah. <laughs> the way his life's gone. Yeah, but no, I think... It is this whole, it captures William Powell and Carol Lombard at such a good point in their careers because in 1936 they were both at their peaks. Like he, William Powell mostly played these kinds of roles, these, I here's Bill Murray again, but he had like this, definitely this set persona and so we brought that into a lot of his other movies. He did a lot of movies with Myrna Loy, they did the Thin Man detective series together and he played one half of the main pair so he like mostly did that and the Thin Man franchise had like just started around this time, so he was super popular. And then Lombard also was really big in the screwball comedy genre as well. And they were also married before this movie for a couple years. They like remained on good terms. And when William Powell was cast, like he was adamant about having Carol Lombard be cast because their marriage, I guess, was really similar. But it is interesting looking at this because it does capture this perfect moment in time where they're both like at their peaks. I think what what he does the best, what William William Powell does the best in this movie is change personas like he gravitates between you know not being a butler and being a butler in this way that's really cool and he pulls it off with posture which i noticed which i really liked uh you know when he's the butler and he's serving everybody he's wearing the very nice crisp suit and he's standing up incredibly straight there's not a there's not a crease in his clothing and it's like everything goes yes thank you ma'am yes very (laughs) much of course and then when he is discussing his actual business plans with other people when he's on his days off you know he's leaned down he's got an elbow on the table he's smoking his hair kind of flips down a little bit and he looks a little bit shadier but also you know respectable almost like a james bond kind Mm -hmm. of feel to him 
But yeah. the way that, the way that he can change, like he's a chameleon, the way he changes depending on the environment that he is in is really really great. And there's an especially good scene where the Cornelia Bullock character tracks him down to a bar that he's at on his day off. She sits down with him and starts talking to him, and then she gets to see the off-work side of Godfrey for a second. And that seems really tense, because the two of them don't get along in the home. He really just, he kind of roasts her in that moment. Like, this movie is... I mean, it's not quite in public domain yet, but once it is, eventually, you know, it'd be... No, incredible. it is in public domain. Is it really? Yeah. Like, I read that it was in public domain, but that it it's kind of shadier because the rights to the book have been renewed. Oh. So it's public domain, but people still can't really use it. It's something like that. Yeah, because I know. I mean, I know that it, like, is very easily accessible because, like, they said something about public domain and, like, how there's been, like, a lot of, like, bad copies of it in terms of, like, just image-wise, because, like, they never, like, renewed the copyright or whatever, so... Gotcha. It's been around forever. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> if, it, Sorry about that. if it was public domain and usable fully, I would love to see somebody take all the scenes where Godfrey roasts somebody and just put some hype men in the background going, Oh! <laughs> damn! Because I think it'd be great. Honestly. I'd love to see that. No, I, the scenes with him and Cornelia are so funny because they both are... I mean, Cornelia sucks. Like, she's really rude. But she's <laughs> rude in a very glamorous way, in an elegant way, and everything she says is so mannered and just the way she speaks is so confident so it's like they're they're like challenging each other almost when they're talking like she won't come out and admit that like she's toying with him she won't admit it that she wants to and that's what she's trying to do and like he won't let her win and those are all funny comparing those to like scenes with Lombard's character because throughout the movie she is I mean she's very funny but she's also a little bit infantile and very dramatic and has like I feel like 50 different moods in this movie she has like different scenes where she has this new persona honestly but scenes with her and Godfrey are always so touching because you get the sense that she's trying as hard as she can to impress him kind of so it's this weird thing of like someone's trying to like prove they're smarter and better and then someone who's trying to like prove themselves but yeah, it's interesting like the whole family dynamic too is like that like everyone is almost testing each other in a way testing each other pushing each other to their limits yeah so I love Eugene Powell like Alice Brady he was a character actor that was really popular in these sorts of movies, but he's very distinctive. He sounds like a Hennessy bottle smoking a cigarette. Um, <laughs> but he has this very distinct voice, and he's like, he's like a huge potato, kind of. Like, he just looks like a cartoon. But he plays this pretty much the same character in all these movies, like this father who is very stern and has this very raspy voice, and he's always displeased with everything. And it it's funny seeing him try to be in this family because I feel like everyone is so high maintenance, but he... I'm so mad at everyone all the time, but yeah, he can still suffer through, but I, like, can't even picture, even just seeing him with Alice Brady, like, I don't even understand how they ever got married in the first place, because they're so different, like, they don't make any sense to me whatsoever. I don't know how he has the patience to deal with everyone. He reminds me of the the mob boss from the Maltese Falcon. Oh, yeah, totally. Sydney Greenstreet? Maybe. Yeah. Does Sydney Greenstreet, I feel like he's, like, the more, like elegant version of him and then I think Eugene Pallet is just very loud and mad. Yeah, Eugene Pallet just seems like a like an angry guy you'd see at like a sports bar yelling at the TV who somehow managed to get hyper rich. Yeah, no, I love him. He's a, yeah. he's so good in everything he's in. I feel like I've seen him in movies that are not good, but if Eugene Pallet's in it, like automatically it's better. <laughs> hey Blake. Yes. You wanna hit me with some fun facts? Sure, I have a lot of fun facts today. So- just be a long monologue who really knows who can say 
So this was the first movie to receive an Oscar nomination for every category, and one of the reasons why is because 1936 was the year they introduced Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress. So got nominations for Lombard, Powell, Misha Auer, weirdly. I feel like Eugene Powell should have gotten it, whatever, and Brady. So that was definitely a big milestone at the time. So there's a continuity error as well in the movie that you might not have noticed. So there's a scene in the movie where Cornelia tries to make it seem as though Godfrey like stole her necklace. And so when they call over the police to investigate, three policemen come to do that. And then if you notice when the policemen are leaving, there's only two of them. So one of them just like randomly disappears at some point. One of them's probably still hiding in the house somewhere. He was like, man, this place is nice. I'm going to live here. I'm sure there's a spare bedroom that he could go in without anyone (laughs) knowing. They would never know. They would never know. They're too caught up in their drama. Marion Davies, Constance Bennett, and Miriam Hopkins were all considered for the part that Carol Lombard plays, which I feel like doesn't make any sense for any of them, so that's because they didn't get casks. I think maybe Marion Davies, like William Randolph Hearst's mistress, who like isn't a great actress, so, like, I'm glad she didn't ruin this movie. And then I feel like Constance Bennett and Miriam Hopkins are way too dignified, so good on them for not casting them. So the movie was remade in 1957 with David Niven and June Allison in color, which I haven't seen that, but I can't imagine it's very good because I feel like David Niven is way too smug. He's, like, similar to William Powell in that he has. He's, like, the very bougie guy with, like, the mustache, whatever. But Was it also called My Man Godfrey? Yeah, it was also called My Man Godfrey. Okay. But yeah, I can't picture that. And then June Allison is way too... I don't know if you've seen her, but she... Throughout her career, she looks like she's like the 17-year-old girl next door, which I guess could maybe make sense here. But she was also like 40 in the remake, so like that makes no sense. Because Irene, as well, I didn't realize this, but like her character is actually supposed to be like 18 or 19, which explains, you know, why she acts like a child the whole time. Because I was thinking like, Lombard, like you're 28, what are you doing? But then it's like, oh, she's not actually 28. Um, I wish I would have clarified that also because I feel yeah, like it, you're just like this is like that a, makes it pretty creepy actually yeah it makes her a little bit old but you know 18 I mean creepy weird age gap but I guess passable uh, but like not good yeah I don't know that's like back in the day when like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall's marriage you know made sense and that was a big age gap so <laughs> Jeez. yeah those were the days man I don't what know I, I, I read it because it seemed like they were alluding to the fact that Irene's character needed to get married and she'd had so many previous engagements. It seemed to me like in the story she was older. Yeah. And I found it, I found it more like, I don't know, almost touching at the end when she shows up and is like, come on, Godfrey, we're getting married. (laughs) Cause it just seemed like they were two, you know, almost 40 year old people who were getting married. Yeah. I can believe it if she's 19. I mean, I figure if, if she is like this rich woman who doesn't do anything, like I guess, Trying to get married could be something that's, like, at the top of her mind, like, if she's not seeking anything else. But, yeah, it is It is interesting because it's hard to tell how old she is exactly. But, you know, whatever. So Lombard, too, she, I mean, obviously really great screen comedian. She had a really bad habit of ad-libbing by accident, and she would just, like, even if she forgot a line, she would just keep going. But she would do that, but she would ac- accidentally swear while she was doing it. And so they'd have to reshoot all these scenes because there would be, like, some cuss word. But fun fact, here's another one. You can find a lot of those bloopers online, weirdly. So it's weird to see. Wow, I'm surprised they would release those. It's odd to see. I don't even know how they have footage of it, honestly. Yeah, there's footage of her. I mean, you know, everything got caught and you just had to cut it. So somebody grabbed the film reel, I guess. Yeah, and there's, like, footage of her and, like, other of her castmates, like, cussing and stuff. And it's very weird because you're so used to such a sanitized version of movies. 
from the Hollywood Golden Age. So it's it's fun to people say all these words. Wow. Love it. And then due to insurance problems, a stuntman was used during the scene where Godfrey slings Carol Lombard over his shoulder. They were like worried they'd like injure her somehow. So it's just like a dude in a wig. So that's fun. And I guess these are less fun facts. I just wanted to like kind of go over Carol Lombard's career after this because she has a very brief career that's interesting as well. So after this movie, she tried to switch gears and do more dramatic parts because before this, she had mostly been known for her comedies. She had some success with that, but like after a while, like audiences were not having it anymore. So she went back to comedy with like 1941's Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was Albert Hitchcock's first comedy. But Lombard's a lot of the time known. She actually died in 1942 when she was 33. She was really big with the war effort and oftentimes hosted war bond rallies and stuff. But anyway, she was traveling back home to Indiana to do one of those war bond rallies with her mom and her husband, Clark Gable's press agent. And her mom and the press agent, they both did not want to fly and they were going to take a train, but she wanted to get there faster. So she like convinced them to go on the plane, but... When they did that, the plane crashed into a mountain, and so everyone involved died, and Clark Gable was the one who had to, like, go up on the mountain and, like, identify the body. So it was, oh like, super intense to have this actress who's so amazing die in this really, really tragic way. And her last movie was To Be or Not To Be, which is considered one of Ernst Lubitsch's best movies, and she... It's weird because he is so closely associated with the screwball comedy genre like she is, but they had actually never worked together until that point in that. It's nice because it is her last movie, but it was like supposedly a really fun experience for her, and it was like a dream part and a great opportunity for her to work with this director that she loves so much. So it's like a very tragic end to a career, but she also had such a great career and left such a big mark on Hollywood. I feel like that was such a little depressing end to the fun yeah, facts. Yeah, it turned from fun facts to not fun facts, Yeah, but Wow. Yeah. No, I highly recommend too. I don't know if I've talked about it before, but the old Hollywood podcast, you must remember this. They have an episode where they talk about Clark Gable and Carol Lombard's marriage. And that's a really good episode if you're interested in that. The host, Karina Longworth, gets really, really into it and I think even cries at one point. So it's like it's very interesting to go through that entire ordeal in such detail because they... Lombard, like you just had this sense that if she lived longer, she would have done so many more better things too. So... It is fun to kind of go through that timeline and see all the intricacies. Yeah. It's always yeah. it's always great to see actors and actresses who start really young and then get really different parts when they get older. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, uh, God. What's the name of the actress who was in uh, The Avengers, like the old Avengers with the... Oh, Diana Rigg. Yeah, Diana Rigg. Thank you. It's so awesome to see what Diana Rigg used to do and now to see her on Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, I forgot Stuff she's like that. that. She's <laughs> amazing on Game of Thrones as Elena Tyrell. Mm-hmm. But, you know... the last episode we recorded was belly and right after i watched belly in the same night i watched the great muppet caper right after and diana rigg is in that Mm -hmm. and she's great she's so good she actually plays a character kind of similar to some of these rich people in in this movie you know she has a well actually she has a diamond necklace that gets stolen (laughs) not a pearl necklace like in my man godfrey yeah and she reacts the same way alice brady probably would like doesn't she just start screaming oh yeah yeah, yeah, in the middle of the club so yeah also, yeah, that, we should do that movie at some point because I love the Muppets. So oh, I, yeah, I'd totally do an episode They're on the Great so Muppet Caper. Good. Totally. Just to talk about the scene where Miss Piggy's on the motorcycle and like crashes through that uh, the glass window. Yeah, the glass window at the very end. Yeah, iconic. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's a great movie. I, you know what? This is totally a tangent. It's How fine. the heck did they get all those Muppets to ride bikes in that I, movie? It's so crazy. How did they do that? I love it. I like. I think I saw. 
Like, I have, like, my family, like, we all love Muppets, and we have, like, this Jim Henson coffee table book, and it seems like they built, like, this... I don't even know what it was. They built, like, a thing above that, like, the puppeteers could lay on, and, like, they almost had it as, like, marionettes, and, like, the bike was part of the contraption. Like, it's so complicated. Oh, my but gosh. But it's, like, so seamless in the movie. It, it's amazing. I don't get it, like, because they don't have to do that, but they're just like, let's just pull out all the stops and impress everyone, so. I'm going to bring this tangent back around, okay? Good. We're talking about special effects. There's oh, some really uh, amazing <laughs> special effects at the very beginning of my man Godfrey. And I was Are thinking there? to I myself, notice. I was like, how did they accomplish this? Oh, um, <laughs> and it's the title sequence. Mm-hmm. You know, most movies around this time have kind of the, I don't want to say boring, but usually kind of uninspired title sequence that's like just names and it's like there's kind of a grainy or like white background and you just get that for like five minutes and you're like, mm-hmm. all right, when's the movie going to start? This one accomplishes it in a much more interesting way. All of the title sequence is buildings. It's the New York skyline from afar looked at from across the water. And everybody's name is above the building in bright neon lights. And I I would assume it's a matte painting. It looks like a matte painting. But it pans to the right over this really great image for the whole opening credits. And then it stops at an image of a Hooverville with a bridge. And then the image starts moving. It's this seamless transition from matte painting into set, and it's actually the set where it was the garbage dump where Godfrey is, and it's mm. the beginning of the movie, and it's great. That's so cool. It's and very, I... very visually attractive, and just, it's the kind of thing where you'd want to watch a documentary about how they did that, you know? Honestly. <laughs> no, anything with old Hollywood where there is something impressive like that, it's, you know, you're so much more impressed by it because you know there was so much more work put into it than, like, there would be now. Like, now you could just, like, make that on a computer, no problem, but back then probably so painstaking but it almost like sets the stage for the movie anyway to have like this very ornate visual design like you have so much of that throughout the movie just looking into the lives of these rich people like they live in these very luxurious settings that are very you know complicatedly constructed so comparing those two for sure i watched a video the other day that was explaining how they did the opening for stranger things with the the red text that floats around Uh it was really interesting they were like they wanted to achieve this specific look from kind of pulp novels from the 80s so they use this one specific font and then they they did the same technique that they do with old title sequences like that where they they draw the actual words onto like a sheet of film and then Mm. backlight it and get it really really close to a camera Uh, so they did that with the logo and all the letters so it is actually that was done on film but then they transferred that into some digital technology so they could get it to move around in the way that they oh, wanted to super but cool. yeah it's like a hybrid I, I love it when they do that in movies where they take a hybrid of film and digital technologies to make this really interesting not it's like almost retro but like they kind of push push it forward into a new look yeah. It's good stuff. No, I love when like retro comes into play because I think now because like because we all know it's I mean I'm not saying it's easy but like because it is so much more simple to have cool special effects, it's nice to have a throwback of people like actually like working hard doing this kind of handmade sort of thing. Yeah, practical effects are awesome. No, I love it. It's so much better. Usually look better too. So <laughs> Depends how it's done. Sometimes Honestly, you can't tell. True. I All think right. that's about what we've got today. Yeah. I think it's okay to have a little bit of a shorter episode on this how one. How long is it? I'm feeling... yeah, we're at like a half an hour. Oh, that's, damn. That's pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Do you got any final thoughts? Final thoughts, I think... If you are familiar with Old Hollywood, you've likely seen this, but if you have not seen it, 
you know, I think there's always a little bit, people are a little bit weary when it comes to older movies. This movie is like 81 years old, so it is really old. But, you know, don't let that stop you. This is a really fun comedy, very fast paced, and I think it's a good way to, because I think classic Hollywood's so interesting anyway, so this is like a good segue to kind of immerse yourself into that world, because I think it could open a lot of doors. Might want to see other movies like this, so yeah, must watch for sure. And pretty easy to find, because it is. Like, I think you can just find it on YouTube. I didn't watch it on YouTube, but I think it's pretty widely available, so no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way. I think this is a must-watch must for sure. Very funny. This is a movie that's a pick-me-up. It feels really good to watch. You just, It's really funny. It'll make you laugh out loud, or at least it made me laugh out loud. I think it's good because it's not just a comedy. It's also definitely social commentary. Yeah. Just about, you know, wealth, disparity. That's definitely still incredibly relevant today. So, yeah, if, if you want to see something that's comedy that's relevant from 1936, this is the way to go. Love it. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I, I want to watch it again. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's one of those movies you could watch over and over again. Definitely. Such a good pick-me-up. Yeah. All right, what are your recommendations for today, Aiden? Hmm, my <laughs> recommendations. So I went with kind of an older one and a newer one for today. So my first one, just because of the really great dialogue in this film, I think My Man Godfrey would actually be an excellent play because most of it does mm. take place in one house, True. one set. I'd actually really, I'd love to see a stage adaptation of this. I'm actually, sure there has been. I think it'd be really, really good. Yeah. Anyway, a movie that is an adaptation of a play from Alfred Hitchcock is Rope. And mm. I think Rope has kind of similar dialogue to My Man Godfrey. And if you're if you're into some fun camera tricks, Rope is the original Birdman one shot. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> and then my other recommendation, again, because of the dialogue, but a more contemporary movie, Masters of Dialogue currently are the Coen brothers. So I'm going to recommend Burn After Reading, which is also oh, a hilarious comedy that will make you laugh out loud. George Clooney plays the most ridiculous character. Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand is amazing, and Brad Pitt, I think, is in the funniest role he's ever been. Oh, he's so good. That movie's yeah. so underrated. Honestly, God, I love it. It's. I think it. I don't know. It might be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's one of my favorites. It's really good. Yeah. So yeah, those are my recs. What you got? I love the screwball comedy genre, so I just stuck with some of my favorites from that. So my first one is 1934's 20th Century, directed by Howard Hawks. That also stars Carol Lombard. Um, and kind of a dizzy blonde role, but she's a little, she plays an actress in this one, and she, in the movie, she, like, recently breaks up with the guy who started her career. They kind of had a professional, personal relationship, and she decides she's going to leave him. She's going to go start a career in Hollywood rather than keep pursuing Broadway. But while she's on the train, this guy also hops aboard and tries to win her back. And it's really just her and co-star John Barrymore having a diva off, and it's really, really funny. So highly recommend watching that one. Also, this is another Howard Hawks comedy, so it's kind of funny that he does all these. But Bringing Up Baby from 1938 with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant is pretty much, I think, the defining screwball comedy. Just a lot of crazy antics revolving around a paleontologist and a socialite, and it's pretty nuts, and there's a, a leopard involved, so gotta watch the dialogue in that is maybe even faster than this movie, if that's possible, so gotta check that out. And then finally... I really love The Lady Eve, which is a Preston Sturgis comedy from 1941, and it involves Barbara Stanwyck playing a con woman who falls in love with a scientist played by Henry Fonda, and he's like a total square, and she's, you know, obviously this very manipulative grifter. They kind of have a romance on a cruise ship, then he kind of jilts her, and then she comes back for her revenge, and 
another very intelligent comedy. So those three, I could honestly go on with the screwball comedy genre, but, you know, those are definitely the utmost highlights. But yeah, those are my recommendations for today. Well, if you want to hear more of us talking about movies, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Android, and our website, uwpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at The Filmcast. You can find me at Aiden Walkero or Blake at Blake underscore W. Peterson. No, it's just at Blake W. Peterson. Oh. The OG of that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I made your... your, you're at not, not as professional sounding. How could you? I'm so sorry. I'm going to cry. If you want to write to us with a suggestion or you just want to share your thoughts, you can reach us at cinemaadventurepodcast at gmail.com. If you like the show, please share it with a friend so we can get the word out. If you want to follow along with us next Monday, we're going to be talking about the red shoes. So thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. <laughs>